Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast featuring the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and my goal is to use each episode to lift up the career journeys of talented nonprofit professionals so that you can learn from their experiences and take advantage of some great advice. Now, before we get to some great professional development advice from Catherine Lambert, a couple of items I want to run by you. Uh, As always, very grateful that you're listening in, and I hope, if you haven't already, that you'll subscribe on whatever podcast hosting platform you prefer, and maybe share this episode with someone who is also on the nonprofit career journey. Uh, We've redesigned our website, PattonMcDowell.com, So you can get even more of the resources suggested on every episode, as well as direct links to the audio files and other ways to connect. Now, speaking of someone having to maximize their productivity, Catherine is not only the CEO of the Western North Carolina Alzheimer's Association chapter, she also oversees three states in the southeast. Clearly, she has a full plate But it's given her great insight into productivity, talent development, and and what she looks for in hiring and promoting nonprofit leaders. She's particularly focused on those in middle management uh, looking to move up into senior leadership positions within the nonprofit field and how organizations should better create talent development programs so they don't have to look outside necessarily but can provide opportunities for their internal talent. You're also going to get a number of books, resources, and websites to consider. Catherine is full of great ideas. So please sit back and enjoy this conversation with Catherine Lambert. Catherine, thanks for joining me on the path. Thank you, Pat, and excited to be here. I'm delighted to have another conversation with you as your nonprofit journey has been fascinating and I know is going to bring our listeners lots of actionable advice, frankly, as we talk about the journey from getting started to moving into middle management and then assuming leadership roles like the one you have now. But before we jump into that and some of the advice related, tell us about your journey on the nonprofit path. Uh, my journey was very accidental, so I'm I'm envious of all of this new talent that knows they want a career in the right. nonprofit uh, industry. I was actually in the for-profit world and in sales and marketing um, and headhunting, mostly in the financial services industry for the first six years of my career, and was serving on a local board of directors, had just helped them um, hire their new CEO, and I was involved in a massive layoff across the country uh, right before 9-11 and began wow. networking with my board colleagues um, about going, you know, potentially to work at their company. And from that got an interview with the nonprofit of the board I was serving. And um, the rest, as they say, is history. So um, very unexpected, certainly not um, a a stop along the path that I had planned, but um, one in hindsight that was the greatest gift, uh, both professionally and personally. Uh, Fantastic. It's, you and I've used the phrase before, but I, so I guess you'd be an example of a lateral entry, so to speak. It wasn't an intentional get out of college and choose this path, but one that you're glad you assumed. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. It's almost been 20 years, which is hard to believe. Gosh, that is amazing. But you've had some great lessons, I know, from that experience. Let me start, however, as you know, this podcast features an element of productivity. I think something we all continue to wrestle with. (laughs) I don't know that you ever reach a pinnacle of productivity, but we're all trying. So Catherine, tell me, how do you manage what is a complicated, high volume job you have right now and keep yourself organized? So I would say part of it is very high tech and part of it is about as low tech as you can get. (laughs) I have a uh, spiral notebook and on each page represents a week. And so when there is a to-do, so it's a weekly to-do, kind of in large chunks, not small chunks, but when somebody says they need something from me in four weeks, I flip out three weeks worth of pages and write down that to-do, and then I forget about it until then, and I know it's going to pop up. Um, So that's my incredibly low-tech way of managing my to-do list. If that notebook ever got lost, I'd probably have to seek professional help. (laughs) Right. and then I'm very reliant on um, other technology. And, and so I, you know, I'm a big user of, of my phone and my iPad. And I try to do those um, task-oriented things, responding to kind of the easy emails, the easy asks. I try to do that when I am waiting in a doctor's office, when I am um, waiting on the water to boil while cooking dinner. You know, those kinds of things where I um, can don't have to provide a lot of thought energy into a response, but I can move things along for other people. I try to do that at times that um, multitasking is really easy. When it doesn't require a lot of mental capacity, it's just a matter of, yeah. And it would fall kind of to my philosophy of work-life integration more than I would say work-life balance. That's a good way to put it. And well, do you find that you batch activities that do require a lot of mental uh, energy uh, are you a morning person, evening person, or do you kind of balance your calendar to accommodate those things that do require more? I uh, would love to say I balance my calendar. I currently feel like everyone else runs my calendar, right. um, and that is something I'm I'm looking to get a, a better handle on. But I do try to block out. Um, if I have a huge task, for example, we're in the middle of budget season, um, and that requires a significant amount of concentrated energy. And so I will block out a few hours as if it is a meeting so that no one schedules over it, shut my door and, and really get into the meat of that and have no other distractions. So if, if, it, if it's a complicated task like that, I will do that. Um, I may even work at home so that I don't have the line of well-intentioned um, individuals seeking uh, advice and answers to questions out my door as well. Makes total sense. And you and other senior leaders I've spoken with, it, it's so easy for your calendar and a good, I guess, well-intentioned way to be occupied by everyone else, right? And so you have to be very intentional about your own time. I I think it's about figuring out everybody would like you to be at every meeting. And candidly, there are a lot of meetings I would like to be in or a lot of conversations I'd like to be a part of. And it's really both for myself and for my team who is struggling with um, time challenges, because this is not just a a problem that's unique to, to me and other senior leaders. I think this is pervasive throughout the organization is figuring out who has to be there, who's the need to have, who's a nice to have, and realizing that there come times that nice to have means you can say, you know what, catch me up afterwards. Send me the top three things that came out of the meeting telling my to-dos. I, you know, I trust you. And it's a great way to empower your team as well. That's fantastic advice. And I wondered, 
Well, let me, I guess, start at the beginning in terms of things like that. Maybe you learn from a mentor or a supervisor or in the early days. Obviously, your skills were more than transferable from your early work into nonprofit. Were there any surprises when you got started that, that you kind of now can reflect upon 20 years later? You know, my, my first day I, I showed up and I believe there were about 25, 30 staff members and there were five computers. So that was a big <laughs> surprise on, on wow. day one. I mean, this is 2001. This is this is not a time that that's what you would expect. And and we had Internet about 50 percent of the time. And, and that all changed. We, we, we made some significant investments in technology and, um, and made some changes. But I would say the biggest piece was that um, money was spent very differently. Um, you know, every dollar is a donor dollar. You're considering that with every decision you make. Um, you know, I, I couldn't have told you in my for-profit career the price of a single one of those giant um, flip chart sticky notes. And when I began to work in nonprofit, I could tell you what the per cost was. So you know, I think just wow. a different way of, of thinking about things and knowing that every dollar you spent um, was a donor dollar. And, and that really makes a difference in how you think about what is that um, highest return on investment as you spend those dollars. Do you find that still influences your kind of budgeting philosophies? Or I know there's sometimes a scarcity mindset that we in nonprofit maybe go too far and in not investing in anything. But what have you brought from those early days maybe that now still applies? So I, I won't lie to you. I still know how much those, those posted uh, flip chart <laughs> sheets cost. And I think, I think twice about, do we really just want to put one word on them or could we put more words and use, use both sides? But right. you're absolutely right. We, particularly in the, in the area of staff investment and professional development, I do think that we can go too far in, in trying to be frugal with those dollars and not make the investments. I think there is infrastructure investment that can be made that um, helps us work smarter. Um, I think particularly there's investment that can be made in our human capital, which is our typically our single most expensive asset of an organization. Um, how do we invest in that human capital so that we are able to even um, have greater outcomes from them as they move forward? That's such good advice. I Early on, and Catherine, as long as I've known you, you've been a lifelong learner and investing in your own professional development. Did you have that kind of benefit in your I, early I, nonprofit days? I did. Um, I was very fortunate. While we may have only had five computers, um, we were very, uh, very much into investing in staff. And, and I was fortunate enough to um, be able to, to take most of the classes over a, a five, six-year period from um, the fundraising school at, at um Indiana University and other local things with the local AFP chapter. Um, that was that was a very intentional investment and one that, um, in fact, I just did it last night. That we plug in dollars for every single staff member, from uh, the person who does administrative operational work to my role, has those dollars in the budget for them to find what it is that will help them be a better professional. That's fantastic. So in other words, I have a, I have a dollar amount if I work for you, and, but then I have some discretion as to how I want to invest it. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I don't know if somebody came to me, if they could make a case for why underwater basket weaving would help them be better in, in their <laughs> role, I might consider it. But, um, but absolutely, this is come, come to me and share what it is you're hoping. And it's actually part of the um, review process as well in the goal setting process. Everyone has a developmental goal written into their annual goals about what it is they're looking to do over the next 12 months. And then in the review process, we sit down and talk about 
what is it you want to be doing, whether that's three years, five years, you know, my personal hope is that we will have something within this organization, um, but it really helps me to understand someone's career path um, to be able to make suggestions on where they are today and what, you know, in that toolbox of skills and knowledge, where do I see that they have an opportunity to add to that so that, you know, if this is really where they want to be in five years, um, what's that logical path? What are some of those steps along that journey to help them get there? Well, you know that is near and dear to my heart, Catherine, in terms of this kind of path to nonprofit leadership. I couldn't agree more. Individuals that have some clarity around that long-term vision, not that they know exactly, none of us do, but also, I guess, evidence of lifelong learning. It sounds like you want them to justify professional development opportunities because that's just good for both them and the organization. Absolutely. And I know for me, if, if someone is investing in me, I am more likely to invest in them longer term. And so I, I think it's a good business practice. I think there's a very high return on investment, both the skills they learn that directly apply um, to the work that they do for us today. But hopefully that feeling of when, when another opportunity comes around that they say, you know what, I've, I've got an organization that's investing in me. I'm, I'm going to think twice about departing from that. It's a great point. And, and we both know so many of our nonprofit colleagues struggling with uh, retention, the, the turnover issues. And I would absolutely agree that investment in that professional development component is a great way to retain people. It is, but we as professionals, we also, you know, I, I put the budget in. I let everyone know that that money is there for them. And then past that, the, the onus is on that individual. And so I, I think all of us, myself included, I am guilty of having best intentions of what I would like to do for professional development and then having the, the burdens of the day-to-day -day sometimes get in the way of that. And so I think we as professionals have to be intentional in saying this is as important as the other things on my to-do list this year and I'm going to make time to do those. That's great advice. Um, and I, I hate to meet with someone on this path that kind of lamenting the fact that it's always on the back burner, right? They've always thought about, well, maybe I should get a CFRE or maybe I should explore a graduate degree or whatever component of professional development they have, but frankly, they never move forward. Exactly. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's some of it here is, does your organization invest in you? And then it's, if they do, are you then putting action to that and investing in yourself? Exactly. Well, Catherine, you alluded to back when you and I were kind of getting started that perhaps there weren't many folks in early stages that knew nonprofit was for them. Are you seeing more now that do indeed kind of early stage career think nonprofit is for me? And what are you seeing in terms of the new to nonprofit kind of talent pool? That's actually, I think, one of the most promising things uh, in the field is there is a very strong new to field talent. Um, when we post some of our jobs that, that have the ability to um, bring in someone who is, who is new to the field, new to career, um, we tend to have a very good response. Individuals who pursued either a degree um, in, in the nonprofit space or have, have taken courses that set them up for that. Um, I think we all know that, at least for me, nothing I learned in school truly set me up other than how to think and get along with others truly set me up for success um, in, in terms of practical experience, but I, I am seeing a very hungry uh, group of individuals coming into the nonprofit uh, work career space uh, that, that are very eager for this to be their life's work. 
That's certainly encouraging. And if we can help develop that talent uh, to the specifics of our organizations, obviously you're looking for folks that match up with the job description, so to speak, but are there other things you are looking for or interview for that help you determine if someone's going to be a good fit to work in your organization? So someone asked me once, what was the thing I, I looked for? And I said, smart people. And, and what I mean by that is, is not an IQ test, give me a number and, and great, you're in or you're out. It's, it's smart in the sense of, um, are you able to think through and problem solve? So um, someone on my team that comes to me and says, I have a challenge and I've thought of a couple ways we might be able to solve that. Or I have a challenge and I've thought through some things and I don't think they'll work for this and I'm really, I'm really at an impasse and I need your help that individual, someone who can walk through that process of creative problem solving, that's what I'm ultimately looking for versus the individual that says, I have a problem. And then there's a period at the end of that sentence. Um, So creative problem solving, um, someone who has the ability to build relationships. And um, I'm talking more than email and text, but I'm, I'm talking true relationships, whether that is on the revenue side of, of the equation, where I think that is so critical and, and such a skill that um, whether we're talking about our, our smallest donors or our major gift donors and prospects, that being able to build a relationship, understand what that individual is trying to accomplish with their donor dollars, that to me is uh, a critical skill set. So someone that has the ability to engage and um, show me that they can build relationships, that's going to be a critical skill as well. So you want me to have examples, tell stories? In other words, if I, again, I'm, I'm relatively new to the field, I'm interviewing with you. It sounds like you're looking for concrete examples of making kind of good decisions or at least having a process and relationship building. And I think it's difficult, um, particularly for those new to field to have examples that maybe they believe are credible in the sense that, okay, I haven't held a, a, you know, a, a 40 hour a week job previously, and I don't know that my examples are relevant. They are. And someone who can show me how, whether it was, you know, through their Greek organization or another club that they were involved with through school, um, that they had some leadership in and how they helped them overcome a challenge, that's incredibly relevant to me. Um, you know, someone who uh, I, I just, in fact, interviewed someone who had. Um, done a large fundraiser that was peer-to-peer fundraising, which was an exact match for the for the job. Well, they did it as a student volunteer. That's wow. impressive to me. That's they weren't getting paid to do that. I'm I'm going to offer to pay them a salary to do the same thing and motivate others to do that. So, someone who can take um, anything they've done to date, even if it's not directly applicable, and show me how it is uh, relevant using those stories and examples that to me past past behavior uh, indicates future behavior far more than anything else in my opinion it's great advice and again something a lot of folks in pondering an interview opportunity need to have those kind of stories uh, available and they likely exist and perhaps they haven't thought of them in the way that you just suggested so i love that as a uh, set of advice uh, Catherine, I'm being intentionally provocative in saying that the nonprofit sector, I think, generally does a very poor job of onboarding talent. So you just described, you know, the identification and the hiring, perhaps, of a new talent. But 
I don't think many organizations do a good job then of retaining things like you do for professional development. Obviously, with the Alzheimer's Association, you're managing talent across multiple states. How do you or what is your approach to the onboarding process to make sure this new talent indeed stays around? Well, I have to be honest. Often it, um, it feels like welcome. You've, you've done this wonderful job of, of courting someone to join your organization. And then you literally throw them in the deep end without a life jacket and say, good luck. Yeah. I'll check in on you in a few months. Hope everything's okay. Um, I, I'm guilty of that to some extent because um, by the time we've had a vacancy and someone fills it, sometimes it does feel like as an organization you're drowning. But uh, I am very fortunate to be part of a larger organization that has a very intentional onboarding program. So carving out that time for them to uh, spend time with someone who is in the most similar role to them um, and, and who is succeeding in that role that they can take some best practices away from, you know, how do you manage your time? How do you manage competing priorities? But then I think what's also important is too often we become very siloed as an organization and don't understand the, the full scope of the strategic plan of the organization and the work that our colleagues are doing. Um, and even in, in our world where we have public policy work, program work, development work, they are all interrelated. So making sure that that individual in their first 30 days has some very intentional and meaningful time with colleagues in, in the other pillars of our organization, um, I think that is so critical. And then really putting together that year plan, which includes tactical goals against the strategic plan, the real meat of what their job is, but also something that is a personal professional development goal. And in year one, it could be attend, if it's a development professional, attend several programs so that I understand um, what it is that we do with the money we raise. Right. Um, you know, what, whatever that might be, understand our policy initiatives and then help them actively carve the time out to do that. Yeah, love that. And I think that so uh, goes such a long way to assuring they're going to succeed. I like the concept you just mentioned of kind of, a, I don't know, a, a colleague. I don't know if it's a kind of a, a peer within the organization that can be their mentor, coach, buddy, whatever you call it. But you as the supervisor may not always be available to them, right? So it sounds like you give yourself and them, uh, the new employee, a backup to have someone to connect with. I also, and again, you mentioned a multi-state. So I, I do have the, it, not every day does it feel like a benefit, but um, the benefit of a multi-state region. And so I, I have the ability to say that best person to be their mentor may not be someone that's actually in their same um, chapter. It may be somebody in a different chapter um, who's encountered, particularly in management roles. Um, you know, what, what do they say? It's lonely at the top. So when somebody, particularly a new supervisor, is coming in, I will try to partner them with someone else who's had similar experiences or a team that's in a similar place that, that they have as part of that network of, even if it's just to vent or to ask a question, right, sometimes right. you don't want to do that to your supervisor because you think, mm, I don't want them to know that I'm, I'm, I'm having this, this little breakdown today. You <laughs> certainly can't go to your team. Um, and so it's nice to have a, a trusted colleague. Um, you know, I, I think you and I have talked about this often with, with several of our colleagues that we have that, you know, here where we're, we're not, in the same organization, but we're in the same industry and have many of the same challenges and we'll bounce those off of each other. And, th and that's an incredibly um, 
that that's probably the piece of advice I would give to anyone new to management is find that person outside of your organization or your immediate office as quickly as you can, because that is the saving grace in my opinion. That's such good advice. I could not agree more. I've in talking to people about this concept, one, like you said, there's somebody else in your community doing a job just like yours. So identify and reach out to a peer who can understand, uh, you know, the kind of challenges and opportunities inherent in your job. I also advise looking for who is an aspirational peer. In other words, when I've had different jobs, I, it doesn't take long within your professional network to ask who is considered the best in our position. And, and I found people that are in that kind of senior role often are very willing to talk to you as long as you don't waste their time and are respectful, but finding a comparable peer and then maybe an aspirational peer would give you two kind of means of communication that I think can be very valuable. I, I love that concept of an aspirational peer. I, I sort of lucked into one very early in my career and it, it is a wonderful place to understand um, not, not every organization, unfortunately, has a culture where you can say things like, one day I would like to be the executive director, and right. um, that that doesn't create fear and angst. Some organizations very, very able to say that, but to then go to that person and say, if this was the next thing on my career path, what would you suggest for me? Um, mine was very honest with me and said, you have some... some uh, Sometimes you have some arm, uh, arm, arm movements that could, could offend someone. And so I thought, I'm so glad someone told me that. And, and it was something that I worked on after that. So it, it's that person that can help you hold the mirror up and say, um, here's where you are today. Here's where you want to go. And, and I can help tell you what I've done. And it's not in your current, uh, it's not in your current swimming pool, which is nice. <laughs> that is so good. Because you're right, we're not we're not going to be self aware sometimes that we need to be, and someone else can help hold that mirror up and help you identify ways to improve. Um, well, Catherine, you, you've been such a, a champion among many topics within our sector, but let's call it the middle management stage. Um, we've talked about bringing people, talented people, on board, onboarding them so that they can succeed. They're moving up in their responsibility and so forth, but now what? And, and I often hear the question, well, you know, do I have to leave this organization to move up the ladder? But it sounds like you're doing things at the Alzheimer's Association to not necessarily push someone out so that they can climb the ladder, but you want to keep them on the ladder that's right there. So my, my, my professional goal, um, I, haven't, I haven't hit it and, and may, I may not ever have full attainment, but my professional goal is that I would be able to do all advancement opportunities from an internal pool of candidates. Yeah, fantastic. Um, that we would be able to groom all of our executive directors, all of our VPs of development and program from talent that we've um, brought in at more uh, entry levels and they've, they've spent time with us and, and they've grown in the organization. From an onboarding standpoint, we were talking about that earlier, um, to onboard someone in a new role is far easier than to onboard someone into a new role in a new organization at a senior level. Um, both from the churn that I find that it creates in, uh, if, if it's a you know, middle level or a senior level manager, the teams that report to them, we tend to have better retention when it's been a respected internal candidate um, that is promoted into that than when someone from the outside has 
has come in. And that's not to say that people from the outside don't bring valuable external organizations, skills and knowledge and ideas. I'm not suggesting we don't want to still have that influx of, of new um, energy and ideas, but I, I do think where we can invest in our, um, in our rising stars um, right. so that they become that next level of management um, in a senior level management role, my job becomes easier when I can do that. Well, so I'm, 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 let's say that I'm an up and comer in your organization. The position just above me on the ladder, though, is filled and likely to remain filled by someone who's also talented. Will you allow me to take on new responsibilities? What are things you would do to help me as a middle manager, you know, stay engaged, but if there is not an opportunity to advance? So I think, I think there's several pieces to that. I, I think the, the biggest piece of advice I would give my team is, one, be the best in the role that you have. Um, that is one of the best ways to be considered for a different role when it comes available versus constantly be telling me you want this other role, like be the best in the role that you're, you're in and say, Hey, one day I'd like to be considered, but absolutely. When there are opportunities for a new project, there's a work group, there's a process that could be improved, raising those things up and saying, you know, I've noticed this year that we could maybe, um, we could maybe look at this process or this activity and maybe we could do it better. Maybe I'd love to take the lead of, of looking at that. That says to me, one, you, you identify where there is, where, where there's a gap or where there's an opportunity. And not only that, you, you want to take a lead in, in pulling some people together to ask about it. Or maybe it's a retreat that's coming up and you have an idea for a topic and you'd not only like to throw it on the agenda, you'd like to maybe run with that. So all of those places that not only show me, um, and give you an opportunity to do a different thing and, and to take on a different responsibility. It also shows your team um, what a leader you are. And then it becomes a no-brainer, if you will, when someone like that moves into another position. The other piece is, is I would have my eye open that it may not just be that, um, that vertical uh, next position that's obvious on the ladder, as you spoke about, that right. Um, right. I think one of the best piece of advice I, I got when I at one point said, you know, I think it, my next role, whenever that might be, might be an executive director. And someone said, you're a really strong development professional. You understand the marketing and communications piece. But I don't know that you have the experience on kind of the mission side of the house, the program side. And so I actually asked to take on a different role, still kept those other responsibilities, but asked to take on some added responsibilities so that I would have those types of things in my toolkit when I was moving on to that next role. So understanding that there may be some lateral um, experience and skills that may not just be in your you know, particular space. Uh, I love that. And I, I had a similar experience that I started on the program side and of course knew that if I wanted to reach the pinnacle of nonprofit leadership, I would have to have fundraising experience. So that helped guide me in that direction. Also, as a liberal arts major in my undergraduate days, perhaps uh, math and budgeting were not my strong suit, <laughs> but um, I was intentional and, and ultimately, you know, pursued a graduate degree and an MBA to, to bolster my skills there. So there are things you can do in that middle stage. And, and I love your example of asserting or, or, or suggesting leadership opportunities or new initiatives because you know when you finally get that interview to be an executive director, they're going to ask you 
when and where have you demonstrated leadership? And so what you offered, Catherine, your team would give them a perfect answer that, well, let me tell you about the time that I took on an initiative, you know, back in that part of my career. And it becomes a great answer to an interview question. I think there are three ways you can do it. There's, there's the time that someone says in, in a management role says, I have a need. Can you fill it? That's, that's, that's the most direct way. But then I think there's a time when someone says, I'm thinking about um, launching a work group on XYZ. You can proactively say, I don't know if you have someone in mind, but I'd love to be considered for that. Because even if you're not, you've, you've raised your hand and said, I want to take something else on. And then there's the third, the completely proactive I see a need and I always appreciate that even if I don't see the same need and I don't take them up on it at that moment. Um, a lot of times my head is so down and, and the stuff that's on, you know, my spiral notebook as we discussed earlier <laughs> right. that, that I've missed that there is an opportunity for something. And the truth is it doesn't have to be something that I've seen as the opportunity. If the group feels like there's an opportunity. Well, and, and Catherine, I think we got all three of your great ideas and I'll, I'll keep going with the fact that not only are the specifics of those uh, volunteering opportunities, but you're just showing initiative, right? And that's something you as a senior leader want to see in people that aspire to climb the ladder is indeed uh, initiative. And that's what you're saying. That's exactly right. And, you know, we have built into our formal, um, in fact, it, it came from my previous organization um, and, and I brought it here uh, to, to, to my team of this very intentional conversation at a review that is not part of the review, but it's just, we know it happens annually, therefore it's a good time to have the conversation about, you know, is this a time you, you're you great with what you're doing? Um, you wanna dial it up, you wanna dial it back, what other things might you have an interest in? It's really understanding where that person is because let's be honest, there's nothing wrong with someone saying, I have a lot to learn and do in the role I'm currently in. And I really want to take this next year to dive right into that. That's a great conversation. I completely respect that. Um, that's very valid. So is, you know what, I've been doing this about three to five years and I'm ready for something to challenge me. So I'm going to be thinking of that. But if you have something, please keep me in mind. If your organization doesn't have that as part of a natural conversation, make that part of a natural conversation. Ask if in one of your one-on-ones, you can talk about your future with the organization and your role, but be very intentional about it. Love that. And you're right. I, I, you and I both have coffee with folks who are frustrated, but I wonder how many of them have not taken your good advice uh, in that sense. Are you initiating conversations? Because I think if you're waiting for your nonprofit to figure it out for you, then you're going to be waiting a long time. And you know, Pat, and I, hindsight's twenty twenty for all of us. Um, one of the questions that I now ask, if, if um, it's been a while since I've interviewed for a position, but one of the questions I asked when I was taking this one was, what was the commitment to professional development? And how often did they promote internally? And good, good ask those questions from the get-go because it will tell you volumes um, if, if that's not what they're doing, doesn't mean that's not an opportunity, but it does mean that you're going to have to be far more proactive about it. It's not going to be part of the ingrained culture. That's such good advice. And interviews indeed are two-way streets. And you are missing out if you don't go into these interviews with your own questions, in addition to thinking about the responses to theirs. 
Well, and, and you know, when you think about how to ask that question, my, one of my least favorite questions is essentially, when can I be promoted to the next job when I'm interviewing you for the, a different job? Right. So I think you have to be very careful in how you phrase those questions. But I, I do think asking about the organization's philosophy on um, promotions from within and asking about what investment is made um, in, in their rising star talent. And those are things that I would always respect this question. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, Catherine, you've given great insight in the early stage, the, the quote, middle stage of nonprofit leadership. Let's talk about, quote, senior leadership now, the position you're in now. Are there any kind of overall lessons now that you have achieved, you know, senior leadership, so to speak? Um, is there a, a big a challenge or surprise that you faced now that you have kind of uh, uh, gotten into this role? I think one of the biggest challenges um, it may may explain my focus on this mid career management. I, I see a real a real dearth of um, folks that are ready to assume what what I would call my direct reports. Those kind of VP senior um, folks, and so um, my hope is that by focusing on this mid career and investment in that group and making sure we retain our um, new career folks and bring them along to mid-career with us, that I will not have that challenge in, f- in future years. But that was a big, that was a big aha for me to realize I had great individual contributors on my team. Um, what I was missing what were folks that were ready to move into senior leadership roles. So um, that probably explains some of my focus there. Um, I also think it's just a, uh, it's a whole different level of competing priorities. Um, working with a volunteer board, managing a full team, um, the, the buck stops with you um, on everything. Um, how do you manage all of that and still maintain some version of a, a healthy personal life as well? Yeah, which is always the quest, isn't it? To maintain balance or I think you said integration of uh, life and work and everything else um, is never uh, a never ending quest. Uh, how do you continue to sharpen your skills? Because I, knowing you, I know you uh, are not resting on your laurels and achieving a senior position. What do you do to kind of self-evaluate and self-improve? So making sure that, that I take my own advice about professional development and, um, and or what I would call intentional networking. So um, while it, you know, I think when you reach senior leadership, it's realizing I, I went to a session, I thought, well, gosh, I don't have as many notes as I used to have. And I thought, well, that's probably because I have at the time 15 years of experience and I should be leading a session, yep. um, not necessarily sitting in the room. So, so, so kind of having that aha moment and, and saying, okay, what, what am I going to do to give back? Because in the giving back, I have frequently learned more um, than I ever planned. So whether that is being a mentor in our uh, local chapter, AFP, uh, mentor mentee program, I've done that several times. Um, whether it is leading a session at our um, annual conference, um, whether it is doing the same within my own organization of, of finding someone that I think um, is, is a rising star or new to their role um, and being able to kind of have that unofficial uh, mentor relationship. Those are all things that have helped me stay sharper because I learn from every single one of those uh, in very big ways. So yes. that, that would fall in my giving back part. 
And, and then I would say understanding. So, you know, I, I know you're an avid re reader and I, I love to go to anything you're doing because I feel like I get my my book club list, if you will, <laughs> of what I should be what I should be reading. But um, what are those things that I can read that that have practical implications into my day to day? And so, um, you know, they're they're not as lofty and intellectual reads, Patton, as some of the things that um, you have recommended. But one of the things that uh, <laughs> that I, I read as part of a, a session that my peers and I were uh, in called Eat That Frog, um, oh, yeah. 21 Great Ways to Stop Procrastinating and Get More Done in Less Time. And I, uh, I led that as a session with my full team at our retreat. And, you know, some of those you think that was great, but you have no idea if they thought it was great. And in reviews, I had four different staff members talk about they were identifying their frog and how it had changed how they looked at the world. So, you know, I would say there's probably not revolutionary new stuff out there, but it's continually figuring out how do I take what I do okay or do well and maybe do it a little smarter, um, a little better. I love that. And it's such good advice on several levels. One, I think the opportunity to teach something always will help you learn it even more. So as you said, if you feel like you've reached a point when sitting in the audience, I'm not getting a lot out of the presenter, then absolutely get up and teach it. And I, I bet you will learn more as you have uh, uh, mentioned. Uh, my colleague, Penny Hawkins, is a big fan of uh, Eat That Frog. So I'm delighted to hear you have used it even as a full team building exercise. She noted uh, it has absolutely transformed her kind of daily routine. And in other words, she has a plan to eat that frog first thing in the morning, gets up absolutely. early to knock it out. It doesn't, like get any better. doesn't get any better as the day goes on. And then, uh, you know, we were talking about a good colleague of ours, Michelle Hamilton. She, she talked about um, strength finders and strengths-based leadership. And I, I think the other thing that surprised me um, in being in, in the senior leadership role is, um, shouldn't have surprised me, but wow, it's not just the work, it's the human dynamics. And um, that can be the most complicated part um, of, of getting to our ultimate goals um, as an organization. And so I have found this strengths-based leadership to be one of the single greatest tools. Um, put my whole team through it. We had a whole retreat. And what I've realized is um, when, I'm, when I'm challenged uh, with someone on the team, typically it's because I've tried to relate to them based on my own strengths. And when I go back and reread what theirs are, and what they need um, and how they need to process things, I have another big light bulb moment and go about it differently and have a very different outcome where everyone is happier. And so I think that has probably been one of the biggest game changers for me as a leader. Uh, that's fantastic. And we'll link to that in the show notes, Catherine, among several of your great resources here. So thank you for mentioning and I love the fact that you've turned some of these resources not only into personal reading opportunities, but you take it back to your teams, which I think is a great tactic that other nonprofit leaders should consider. Doesn't mean everybody's going to relate to the same book the same way, but it, to me, it just illustrates that you're a lifelong learner, and that's good, uh, a good example you're setting. Let's move into the final discussion, if you will, Catherine. Any final advice you've covered great things for people to consider regardless of where they are on the path. But I wonder again, in the classic, you're sitting with someone pondering the nonprofit sector, 
any other advice you'd offer that we have not yet discussed? You know, I, I think the asking, asking questions, learning from other people's moves and the questions they wish they had asked as they made those moves. Right, um, right. Learning not just from them in terms of tactical pieces, but what, what when they made their move did they wish they had asked that maybe has led to be the frustration in their current role? Um, so I think that's a question I always ask folks, uh, not necessarily when I'm interviewing for a position, but my colleagues, you know, what, what is it you wish you'd asked along the way in the, in the interview process that you didn't? That, that has been so helpful for me as I have interviewed um, to add to my list of questions. But the second piece I would give is that um, you may have a very clear path laid out for yourself. And life can happen along the way that that path isn't realized. And, and it can feel like um, it, is, it is the end of, of kind of what your vision was. And, and that, that happened a little bit to me. Um, right. What I would say in that, though, is that there is a wealth of opportunities um, in this community across the country. And sometimes when, you know, I go back to I was laid off. I thought that was tragic back in in 2001, it led to a career um, that I would have never imagined or pursued otherwise. Um, you know, I, I, I did not have an opportunity I thought that I was going to have. It has led to the best role of my entire career. So really look for some of those, um, oh, there's a song, the unanswered prayers, if you will, right. um, that, that come along as, as gifts for what could be next on your journey. That's so well put, Catherine. Thank you. And good advice, both specific and uh, general, in a sense, to all of our journeys. Um, Well, to wrap up, uh, you knew I would. Let's wrap up with our book club section. Uh, Tell me, what are you reading? What are you recommending? Anything in particular? So, you know, one of the things that I, I have most recently been reading is a book called Built on Values. Um, and it is talking about it, how, how to create a values-based organization. Um, you know, I think we get so focused on the, uh, the tactics of a strategic plan, and I don't, I don't want to move away from that because that's ultimately how we deliver on our mission, but really making sure that uh, we're values-based. So I, I've been very, very excited about that book. I always go back and look at um, unique ways to reward employees. So there, there are several books with different numbers of ways, but um, sometimes resources are limited. And so I'm always grateful for those opportunities to think creatively um, about how to reward a team. And then, um, as I said to you, I feel like my strengths-based leadership, I'm going to have to get a new copy because the pages are about to fall out. We will absolutely lift that one up and uh, strength-based. I've got, I think, several of the books in that category because I couldn't agree more and I'm going to add built on values as uh, sounds like that needs to be one on my list. So thank you for the recommendation. Absolutely. Well, Catherine, thank you. This has been fantastic. I appreciate your time and conversation here on the path. Uh, where can folks go to learn more about the good work you're doing uh, through the Alzheimer's Association? At alz.org slash North Carolina. That is wonderful. We will have that so noted in the show notes. And Catherine, I hope we can do this again sometime on the path. Thank you so much, Patton. All right. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Catherine as much as I did and will make note 
of the various resources and recommendations she brought forth in this conversation. As always, these links will be available on the show notes associated with this episode. And go to PattonMcDowell.com and find a, an expanded version of the show notes in a blog post article. Uh, thank you for all that you are doing in the nonprofit sector and, and for listening in to this episode of Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership. And I wish you well in all of your nonprofit activities and for the support you give to causes that are meaningful to you. Until next time, I will see you on the path.